Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. We're back today with a special live 2 p.m. edition of Political Rewind between the time we signed off on our uh, typical 9 o'clock live show. And now, of course, we saw the inauguration of Brian Kemp. He is now official. He's beginning his second term as governor of the state. All the other state constitutional officers were sworn in as well. The lieutenant governor, uh, Burt Jones, inaugurated. Um, We're going to talk a bit about uh, Brian Kemp's uh, speech and uh, some of the issues that he highlighted uh, during his uh, talk. And uh, we have a few other political issues that we'll get to on the show today. So let me go right to our panel, introduce everybody, and start the conversation. Kevin Riley's doing double duty. You were with us this morning, Kevin, in our abbreviated show when we sort of anticipated what we thought uh, the governor might talk about. And to some extent, we got it kind of right. Yeah, we did. And Bill, I've got to tell you, I mean, being back like this reminds me of the early years in my uh, newspaper career where, you know, all we had to do was put out a couple print editions and we always had a deadline and we knew things weren't perfect. And we'd say, hey, we'll be back tomorrow to try it again. So, hey, I'm back this afternoon (laughs) to see if I can get it done better this time. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you'll do just fine. Stephen Fowler, GPB News political reporter, is with us. Um, Stephen, you were at the inauguration uh, uh, today over at the uh, new Convocation Center at Georgia State University. Um, it's kind of fun to cover an event like that, uh, but there's a, you're doing a lot of work. You're going to be filing a digital story about it uh, shortly after the show today. So I'm really glad you could be with us, Stephen. How was it over there this morning? There was a lot of pomp and pageantry. And uh, of course, you know, there's the military review and all of the traffic has stopped around it, which is kind of like a normal day in Atlanta, except this time there were cannons. (laughs) Well, again, thank you for joining us. Uh, Tammy Greer, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University, uh, back with us. Tammy, how are you doing? I, I hope you're well. I am well, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. And we're really happy also to welcome Rick Dent. All of you who listen to the show regularly know that we called on Rick a lot during the midterm election campaigns because nobody followed the uh, ad spending uh, fundraising as closely as he did. But Rick, I'm glad to say that you are more than just a guy who knows how to keep track of uh, political ads. You have been a political consultant yourself on both sides of the aisle, and you served three Southern Democratic governors in your career in politics, the last one being Zell Miller. And I'm really glad you're here today because I suspect you probably had some role in helping them craft some of their speeches. So I'll be interested in your thoughts about the uh, Kemp speech, but welcome to the show. Oh, great to be here. And I was going to say inauguration days are nightmares for me. I have these flashbacks because this is one of the hardest time for those staffs um, in in the political year. All the speeches they have to do, the legislative agenda, the polling, the budget, it, it is just horror. And all that has just come back today watching it. 
Oh, well, uh, I'll be interested in hearing your thoughts on how things unfolded uh, today. Um, let, let's start by talking about the fact, uh, Kevin Riley, that, um, as I said in the opening of the show, one of the dominant themes in his speech today was resilience, the resilience of his family in dealing with uh, some of the, uh, the hits they feel that they took from media, from opponents and whatever, uh, resilience of his administration in dealing with the pandemic, resilience of the Georgia people in struggling through uh, COVID and then tough economic times. And he talked about his sense that uh, he believed Georgians were going to have faith in the future. A, a very positive message uh, as part of the theme of his speech today. Yeah, he said, used that word an awful lot, uh, Bill, you're right. And uh, I think, you know, part of what it seems to signal is he's trying to make a turn from talking almost endlessly about how horrible the, uh, as he kept calling it, the Biden economy was and and how, um, you know, he was helping Georgians. And again, I think trying to put some positive uh, words and momentum in place as he heads into a uh, new four-year term. But uh, he did he did um, say a lot of nice things about resilient and I think hardworking Georgians over and over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, hardworking Georgians has definitely been one of the key phrases from Kemp's first campaign for governor all the way through the inaugural speech today. And I'll bet we'll hear it in the State of the State speech later this month. Stephen, um, uh, Tammy, and Rick, let me go around to each of you and ask you for your general thoughts about what you heard the governor say today. Stephen? Well, I think it's almost as much what he didn't say. Um, he's had the last four years that have had plenty of ups and downs, which he did mention from the coronavirus pandemic to some of the election turmoil he hinted at, and also some of the successes with investments and development and the unemployment rate. But we didn't really hear a lot about what the next four years might hold. I mean, Kemp is at the top of his power right now. There's arguably no politician more powerful in Georgia. He's one of the most powerful Republican governors in the country. He has a lot of appeal, not just with the hardcore part of the Republican base. And so the political world is his oyster right now. And there's not a lot of what he's going to do with it. I mean, the budget proposal will come out Friday morning and we'll know a little bit more about what he wants to do with the surplus and elaborate on things. But, you know, I, I think, you know, both in the AJC and the Associated Press previews this morning, they both hinted that there's really this question mark of what will Brian Kemp's legacy be? And for now, he's not really uh, sharing that answer. Tammy? Yeah. So um, what I heard um, is a lot of non or bipartisan language in most of what he said. Um, even if he didn't use language of Democrats, he still used um, uh, synonyms of the language of Democrats in some of his his remarks, um, the way that some of the policies were were discussed. Um, and I know that we're going to go into specific policies later, but some of those policies um, that he's highlighting and touting are very much, um, if you take away labels and in, 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 in audio of who says what, if you just put the words on the paper, you wouldn't be able to tell which political party that individual is from. So I, to me, this goes to show that 
um, partisan politics are created intentionally to separate people from one another, yet at the foundation and core, um, when we really don't have, as Kemp doesn't have a re-election to look forward to, can really discuss matters, policy matters, in a way that there is broad agreement rather than attempting to um, discuss and to get folks at their quote unquote base on board with them, that the policy is really universal. Uh, before I come to you, Rick, I do think that some, you know, uh, much of what you said, Tammy, rings through for me as well. I will say that I got notes from a number of Democrats after the speech who said they wish that Governor Kemp, instead of talking about $2 billion in tax refunds would instead look at using that money for things like health care and other needs that are broader and more long-lasting in the state. But given that, I, I get your point. Uh, Rick, your general thoughts. <clears throat> well, number one, the, the governor is not the greatest public speaker in the world. It was a very monotone delivery and it, it seemed to me he was reading a speech more than performing a speech. And you try to get more of a performance on these kinds of things. Um, my experience with inaugural addresses is it's better to try to be more visionary, to talk about the big picture of where you want to take the state. Uh, one of the mistakes that you can easily fall into, and they didn't, but they came close, is you can turn an inaugural into a Christmas tree and everybody who is giving you input, oh, you got to say this, you got to add this policy, add this policy. And it just becomes this Christmas tree list of here are the 19 things I'm going to do. So I thought, number one, it was a little short on vision of where he wanted to take the state. But I got to say for the four or five main uh, issues that he highlighted, and plans that he has for the future. I mean, I know they did the polling. They're, they're grand slams, every single one of them. And if you look at that, if you look at that list, pay raises, tax cuts, transportation, workforce, housing, I don't think you could tell the difference if that was a Republican platform or a Democratic platform. All that's right. Why so, so, so Rick, popular. Rick, agreeing with uh, Tammy on that, Kevin? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I don't know, I felt as I watched and, and listened to the speech, and I think that uh, Rick makes a good point about it, uh, him reading a speech, because one of the reasons he forgot to name one of his daughters was they left it out of the uh, actual transcript, from what I could tell. And he kind of came back. And I mean, I thought that he handled it extremely well. I mean, as a father um, myself, I mean, I've made similar mistakes, never never in an inauguration speech but uh in in less important environments with with uh just as much risk i would suppose but so i do think he fell into the reading thing but i honestly felt like the speech felt a little bit more like a campaign speech than the visionary kind of inauguration speech that i think rick has made reference to that he went down the line and he you know he criticized washington and you know all that and and part of what i was thinking as i was listening was oh okay well this isn't his last campaign um he's not saying anything in this speech that that won't uh, that might come back to hurt him if he's going to run for senate or he's going to do something else Okay, so I, I want to mention one area where he may have come closer to a visionary 
uh, Im image of what the state can become when he talked about uh, his administration, uh, Stephen attracting Rivian, Hyundai, all of these plants that are going to produce uh, batteries for e-vehicles. Um, and this is what he had to say about that, Stephen. In all, the electric mobility industry will be responsible for 35 projects across Georgia to the tune of $23 billion of investment in 28,000 new jobs. I believe this is a unique moment of opportunity for our state and for the thousands upon thousands of hardworking Georgians who will benefit from great jobs and incredible innovative companies for generations to come. That's why by the end of my second term as your governor, I intend for Georgia to be recognized as the electric mobility capital of America. Stephen, between all of what he talked about, the addition of this uh, expansion, a $2.5 billion expansion of Q-cells, the solar panel uh, and component manufacturer, that very well might be what Kemp looks at as his legacy down the road, what he's done in terms of alternative energy, uh, which is an interesting uh, direction to go for a guy who's as conservative as he is, Stephen. Well, and I will note uh, the very next line that he said is to accomplish this goal, we're keeping our foot on the gas, which is uh, there was quite a bit of laughter in the convocation center. Uh, it's either a, a, an unintentional rhetorical misstep or a very, very clever one. But either way, it's noted. It, it, it is. I, I think when you look at the way Georgia has evolved over the last two and a half decades of Republican control, you've seen the type of conservative economic policy and pro-business policy that has attracted all of these different industries to the state that you're not seeing in an Alabama or a Tennessee or even a Florida in the same way. And it's made Georgia this economic center of the South. And it's made it such, honestly, a battleground state too, because you know there's not exactly a lot of uh, die-hard, hardcore conservatives leading uh, electric vehicle manufacturing companies. And so <laughs> it's bringing in the types of people that don't vote for Republicans. And so Brian Kemp, in a lot of ways, his legacy may be kicking off an era of governance in Georgia or solidifying it where it's a state that maybe votes Democratic and a little bit more liberally and progressively at the federal level, but supports conservatives at the state level because of that type of policy, because it's the kitchen table issues he talks about. You know, he's not going out and being antagonistic like Ron DeSantis is on owning the libs and, you know, being antagonistic on issues like abortion and gun rights, but he still did those conservative things. But at the same time, he's bringing billions and billions of dollars into all parts of the state and helping people at the end of the day make more money, keep more money, and be able to spend it on what they want, which is kind of a bipartisan thing. Rick, the uh, talking about e-vehicles, talking about alternate sources of energy, um, that's visionary uh, in terms of what he hopes for the state, yes? It, it is, and, and it does a, a couple things. It continues this idea that came out of the Republican primary that Brian Kemp is actually a different kind of Republican, that he's a moderate. Mm -hmm. Now, we can argue whether that is true or not, but it, <laughs> it further solidifies that idea. I think, number one, number two, it's good politics, mm -hmm. 
jobs in general, but the fact that a Republican can point to green jobs is an extraordinary thing to be able to do. And look, he learned from two years ago how those Democrats won in Atlanta and Georgia, and that is those suburbs and those college-educated women. And he knows, and he saw it again this time, he won and Warnock won by appealing to those groups and not being strident and not being red meat. And he was a completely different candidate. And so if you want to talk about what his legacy is going to be, I think it's going to be in the end, he's going to have a future uh, political uh, place to be. But number two, his job as governor is to make sure Republicans continue to lead this state when he's gone. And he can do that uh, by being Tam a great governor. So I didn't mean to interrupt you there, Rick. Tammy, another way that he uh, certainly hopes uh, people will uh, thank the Republican Party and him specifically was talking about the tax breaks um, uh, 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 as, as much as $2 billion. He talked about it during the campaign. And he put it in the uh, speech today. Let's just listen to a little of what he said and then Tammy jump in. We can't fix every disastrous policy made in Washington, D.C. over the last two years. But because we were in your communities and heard your concerns and your challenges, my budget proposal will fulfill two big promises I made to the people of this great state. First, we will once again return $1 billion of your income tax in the regards of a refund to our taxpayers this year. And second, we will allocate $1.1 billion for a one-time homeowner property tax relief grant to help you with rising local property bills. So, Tammy, uh, you pointed out he talked about things that could be as well Democratic as well as Republican Tax cuts certainly fit that bill. So I find the talk about Brian Kemp extremely fascinating in that um, Brian Kemp is taking progressive policies and repeating them and getting credit for them in the state of Georgia as if it's a Republican-led um, thought process. Um, because if we could be clear, you know, um, and not that everyone is a Senator Inhofe uh, to get on the floor of Congress with a snowball to say, how is climate change real and it's snowing in Washington, D.C.? It was still the mentality of many Republicans to say that climate change is not real and then fighting um, green energy policies. And, and still there was a trope about um, green policies and environmental concerns. So I find it very interesting that a Republican governor is getting credit for progressive type policies um, and, and making it appear as though um, he's doing it for all of these different reasons and getting credit as a moderate when, again, taking labels off of it. Let's just appreciate that there are these policies there. Let's also appreciate that um, having these environmental 
policies in terms of these green companies also is an economic matter. So it really isn't a who is winning. You get rural Georgia winning because of this. You get expanding the state economy um, and you're getting increased employment. So who can disagree with that? I also find it fascinating that the governor would say that he is fixing every disastrous policies that came out of Washington. When the state of Georgia received something like $4 billion or close to $4 billion of that $6.6 billion surplus that the governor is touting um, and saying that he's returning to the taxpayers of Georgia. So I, perhaps, and I, again, understand that there's probably one of those notions of uh, talking to the base. Perhaps, though, um, if 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 one could resist being partisan about these matters, it benefits every political party. It benefits every citizen, every taxpayer. And um, it's interesting to me how come that can't be the win. Why is it that a partisan slant has to be put on it in order, um, you know, to throw shade at a particular party? Um, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, there were a couple of partisan shots that I want to get to in a couple of minutes, actually, uh, in the speech today. But, Kevin, uh, we should point out that the other, um, I suppose, major takeaway from the speech today is he is offering uh, in his budget uh, pay raises for uh, teachers, other educational staffers, and um, state employees, I think about $2,000. And they've got money set aside something like $150 million, Kevin, uh, in grant opportunities for schools, for security, to deal with learning loss, uh, to help parapros uh, become full-time teachers going through the certification process. I think that is meaningful uh, in many ways. Um, so, you know, let's talk a little bit about that part of this. Plus, Kevin, Although the, the governor himself hasn't weighed in on this, there is talk that this is the legislature that's going to finally address the antiquated quality basic education uh, policies uh, act, which sets funding for schools. Yeah, I do think that part of the speech, uh, it, it, you know, fits in with <laughs> with Tammy's analysis. Right. I mean, these are. I mean, we have a, uh, and I know we're getting the, this later in the show, a group of Republicans in Washington who are out to starve government to get it to change, and they're pretty open about that. And then in Georgia, we have a governor who's really today said, I'm going to throw a lot of money at government, the people who work in government and a, a couple of important government policies. And, you know, we talked about this this morning. And the door is cracked on this Medicaid expansion, or at least trying to get more uh, Georgians um, the kind of health care coverage that we think would lead to better outcomes and obviously has workforce implications. So Tammy's right. Some of these are progressive policies uh, dressed up as Republican business-friendly initiatives. Okay, Stephen, we got to get to a break, but I think it's important. Uh, I'll make the point that an inaugural speech is not a state-of-the-state state address, in that, as, as Rick really has pointed out, in many ways we hope it'll be a more visionary look at what a governor wants to accomplish. We'll hear more details, we think, between the release of the budget and then the state-of-the-state state speech later. But here's a couple things that didn't come up, Stephen, and I, I wonder what your thoughts are on this. Nothing about health care and the vast needs for uh, more people 
uh, to uh, be operating in a healthcare safety net. We heard nothing about that. We heard nothing really about rural Georgia. While it's true that these big economic projects that um, that the state now has won will be somewhat helpful, but those are two huge areas that weren't addressed at all. Well, I do think it is. Yeah, it's important to think of what the role of the inaugural address plays versus the state of the state and versus the budget document. I mean, this was the pomp and the pageantry, you know, Democrats, Republicans, all members of the state government crowded together to celebrate and acknowledge the master, like big picture, the top government official, the one leading the state of Georgia. And he did so by kind of acknowledging what he'd accomplished in the past and really hit some of his key difference-making things that he wants to address in the future. I don't necessarily think that this inaugural address was the time to go into what he wants to do in healthcare or to go into what he wants to do with rural Georgia, because rural Georgia has been, for example, something that has been a constant focus of the past you know, five plus years for him. But I do think what this does is it kind of it gets everybody feeling good. It gets everybody celebrating that there's going to be another four years of Brian Kemp and that he's really the one in charge. And I think the rest is going to fall in place as we get to those pivotal moments like the state of the state, like the budget document. All right. Well, Stephen, you've actually given me a good way to promote the second segment of the show as we take a break. There were a few little comments here and there in this speech that probably didn't make everybody feel great about some of what the governor had to say. And I'd like to address those when we come back on our special live two o'clock edition of Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Rick Dent, Tammy Greer, Stephen Fowler, and Kevin Riley on this special afternoon edition of Political Rewind. Uh, Rick Dent, you worked for, uh, I think you could say arguably, the feistiest governor in contemporary Georgia history, Zell Miller, (laughs) who had a temper and also a sharp tongue and kept grudges, as we all know. So I want to use that as a way to ask you about a few of the little remarks that Kemp apparently could not resist throwing in to his speech today. Twice he commented on Washington and the Biden administration without saying Biden by name. We heard one of those things in the soundbite about taxes. He said, we can't fix every disastrous policy made in Washington over the past two years. And at another point, he talked about Washington's broken agenda. Um, I, it just struck me that if you, again, it, it take Stephen Fowler at his word, you know, this is about how we all come together to celebrate uh, a new term for a governor who says, I'm governing for all the people, not just those who voted for me. Those are the kind of things maybe you want to avoid in an inaugural speech. 
Well, but he also attacked the media, and I think that can unite all of us, can it? <laughs> he did. Listen, well, let me, I didn't let me want jump to, in there, Bill. I, I I just ah, no, 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 no. I, I don't want you to That's go right. first. Don't up. let him no, get it on my, on my time. Ke <laughs> Kevin Riley, you, you can't go first. He did, by name, essentially. He said the Atlanta <laughs> newspaper, and then he talked about yes. really all the rest of us in the media. But go ahead on that, Rick. <laughs> Now, look, I, part of the inaugural, I mean, you've got to throw the red meat out there for your base. You can't just sound like Republican light Governor Brian Kemp. Wait, and so, wait, why do you have to do that in an inaugural speech? Because you got to you got to dance with uh, the, the one you brung to the dance. And you've got to appease that base. You can't lose that base. Uh, there's no future for him without that base. But at the same time, while he threw it out, again, most of the focus was on those four or five items that appealed to everyone. And remember this, and I know he's got the budget address coming and the state of the state if he really wants to be successful, and this is what we tried to do with with the governors we worked with, you got to be disciplined and focused, and he shouldn't go beyond what he's already outlined. Because what you don't want to do in your first two years is get bogged down in little Vietnams and fights throughout that legislative process. You want to talk about four or five things. You want to deliver those four or five things and then pat yourself on the back. And also remember this in terms of the agenda he's trying to lay out. He knows that he is in a party that will try to overstep. And this gives his party the ability two years from now and four years from now to go to the voters and say, look, here's what we really did. Tax cuts, school security, transportation, jobs. Don't worry about all that other crazy stuff we did. So uh, staying focused on that will help him and will help his party in the long run. All right, Kevin Riley. Uh, he did refer to the Atlanta newspaper. I'm looking through the transcript of the speech and I can't find the exact quote. I apologize for that right now. But essentially what he said was um, he has he, he's going to he kept up doing what was best for the hardworking people of Georgia, despite the Atlanta newspaper uh, rest of the media and the pundits who criticized him frequently. Go ahead, Kevin. Well, uh, I would like to congratulate the governor on joining a long list of uh, Georgia governors <laughs> who have uh, criticized uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, and uh, welcome, welcome to the club. And I guess what I would say is we'll keep doing our job, which is to uh, hold the governor accountable to make sure the citizens of the state know what decisions the governor is making, why he's making them, and their impact on uh, citizens of the state. And I would particularly cite when we got all the governor's email between his advisors during the pandemic, and those emails showed that the governor was not necessarily following the advice of health experts, and he made decisions that were, as he cited over and over, good for the state's economy, and we have 40,000 Georgians who died in the pandemic. And that is not for us to judge. That is for citizens to judge. But it's important for citizens to know whether the governor likes that or not. 
Stephen, we, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're used to it. I mean, those of us who have worked in journalism know, uh, I hear it on this show almost every day when I say things that some of our listeners really don't like. They let me know it very quickly. We know that one of the things that happens to journalists as they pursue factual information is uh, when we have something critical of one party or another, we're going to get pushback. But we just move forward, right? And with Kemp, interestingly enough, many reporters have a really good relationship with Brian Kemp. Yeah, and this is one of those things where when people talk about the media, capital or lowercase m, what they really mean is a particular story from a particular place at a particular time that they don't like. And Georgia has a lot of national attention. And I think especially in the last couple of years, both of with the COVID pandemic and with election-related things and high-profile bills around election laws and abortion and things like that, there was a lot of national media attention and scrutiny on Georgia and specifically on Governor Kemp. And a lot of that came from more partisan, ideologically aligned outlets that are uh, have a vested interest maybe in pursuing or portraying Republicans one way and Democrats one way and vice versa. But that's not the same as the people who roam the halls of the Capitol, you know, during the legislative session and go to all of the different events and cover the ins and outs of the state. And so, yes, I would say, you know, the people that live in this state and cover this state and Governor, Governor Brian Kemp for the last four years, every day, have a different relationship. And even though he did mention the Atlanta newspaper by name, I think it's a different relationship than maybe all the national media and things. Because the governor also did mention, you know, he's not paying attention to talk shows and the cocktail circuit, although I'm sure he is talking about political rewind and they do pay attention to everything we say here. But, you know, the Georgia's got the national <laughs> profile. And I think in that regards, I do think a little bit of that dig is a lot of the national media coverage that uh, ridiculed Kemp for a lot of the coronavirus things and pushed back on a lot of the laws. And during the campaign, constantly wrote about how Trump was going to destroy him and he was weak and vulnerable and wasn't going to win. And then he ended up blowing things out of the water in two elections. So there's certainly a media-shaped chip on his shoulder. All right. Thank you. Um, that's. I think we've exhausted for the time being a conversation about what the governor had to say in his inaugural address uh, today. And I think we agree there were some very good points uh, that he made. He remained very much a Republican uh, with some Republican talking points, but also laid out the beginnings of an agenda that I think the panel agrees uh, many people across the state, regardless of party, are going to be happy with. Tammy, just before we leave Governor Kemp, though, we've just learned that Brian Kemp has been invited to Davos next week, a highfalutin annual gathering of some of the biggest uh, 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 corporate people in the world. He's going to be there on a panel with several other members of the U.S. Senate. Uh, his uh, spokesman said, quote, he is going to, this is the quote, to share his, quote, long record of conservative governance, governance, protecting individual liberty, championing opportunity, and uh, will show that that can serve as a model for economic success around the country and around the world. It's a big deal that he's going to be at Davos. But what the reason I bring it up is this is the next stage in Brian Kemp's career, right? Becoming truly a national figure now that he has won second term as governor. 
And perhaps part of that list is to expand job opportunities in say in the state of Georgia in welcoming other industries who and uh, businesses who uh, perhaps looked at Georgia before and 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 didn't and now may take a second look. Um, so it it again goes to the point of some of the folks that go to the conference again, move into the new progressive policy spaces. And so it's it's one of those opportunities where he can, he or his spokesperson can say conservative, conservative, conservative over and over and over again to try to gaslight all of us. It's really one of those um, notions to say, we are open and understand the opportunities that are here in Georgia, that we are allowing businesses from the West Coast, from the East Coast to come here and, and hey, to, not only to the Southeast, but choose Georgia. And um, so he can say conservative from his particular space to speak to his base at the same time to go to somewhere that um, you know, can have, again, tropes of progressiveness, um, you're actually being a moderate in order to, um, to, to expand opportunities for all of the people of the state of Georgia and perhaps the Southeast. And so it doesn't have to be partisan in that, in that effect. Oh, no. I mean, Kevin, I suppose we can all say that there, you know, we may, some of us, kind of make fun of Davos because of the kind of gathering it is, but uh, there are economic opportunities there for a guy like Kemp. Absolutely. And I'm sure that in the end is uh, the way he'll talk about it. Right. Uh, I mean, I've never been invited to go to Davos and, you know, I keep hoping, but I don't think it's coming through anytime soon, Bill, although I keep sending him tapes of this show and I'm hoping that that will have some influence, but um, no, I actually think I, I mean, when all the smoke clears, wouldn't, don't you want the leader of the state of Georgia mixing it up with top economic, you know, powerful people in, in the world to, for the sake of the state's reputation, the possibility of bringing new jobs and all of that? I mean, I, I don't think there's much question about Okay, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. We'll come back and uh, take on several other issues in political news today. This is Political Rewind. Rick Dent, when I first saw a very brief item on the story I'd like to spend a few minutes on now, I was sort of hesitant about whether we should get into it on the show. It's very touchy, um, and it, but it's now uh, widespread. Everyone has reported on it, so let's talk about it. I'm going to read a, headline, a paragraph from the CNN uh, website laying it out. A Republican strategist for the Herschel Walker campaign alleges that Matt Schlapp, the influential chairman of the American Conservative Union groped and fondled his groin as he drove Schlapp back to an Atlanta hotel several weeks before the November midterm election. Um, Schlapp and the American Schlapp has denied this. This happened. The American Conservative Unionists are standing by Schlapp, uh, but there's more and more uh, evidence of of various kinds that suggest that this incident really may have taken. Place. Matt Schlapp is a very big deal in conservative circles, and this is an accusation that uh, really could uh, 
hurt him deeply, yes? Oh, absolutely. And the whole thing sounds, you know, so ugly. And I think the, the good news in all of this is it appears that the staffer who was victimized handled it perfectly in real time, going to his campaign and going to staffers and his superiors and reporting it and reporting it in such a manner that his superiors on that campaign found him to be credible. So you have all of his actions in real time that will certainly back up what he is alleging and certainly uh, puts this all in a very, very bad light. Yeah, Stephen, you certainly covered the uh, Walker campaign, and I assume got to know a lot of the people who worked on that campaign. And we talked on the show a number of times about how at a certain point he brought in, Walker's people brought in some of the best political Republican con political consultants in the country. And you have to say that the way they responded to this, by giving their uh, support to the staffer, by telling him he would never have to drive or have anything to do with Schlapp again, does speak to their professionalism uh, and, and the fact they were willing to address this. Well, a lot of this is about power and abuse of power and mm -hmm. manipulation of somebody so prominent uh, with somebody who's in a junior position of standing. And it's just, you know, the the denials that have come have been in the form of attacking the outlet that first reported it, the Daily Beast, but then CNN and NBC and the AJC and countless other outlets have corroborated this story. And what you're getting from this is a denial that's not really a denial, but also, you know, if it, if the denial were true, it would be calling into question multiple, multiple, multiple people from across the campaign spectrum who would be telling falsehoods about Matt Schlapp. And that just does not appear to be the case. I mean, this is not something you do to make up for clout. It's not a Democratic hit job to try to sink Herschel Walker, or try to sink Matt Schlapp or things like that. And so I think it really, unfortunately, is just another example of somebody in a position of power abusing that power and then trying to wield that power to make it go away. Tammy, uh, this incident happened some months ago. The staffer was asked why uh, he waited so long to come forward. And he said, because I didn't want it to make an impact on the campaign. Um, but, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. Matchlab, who became a big Trumper, used to be a fairly regular analyst on a lot of the cable news shows. Meet the Press he was on, Meet the Press, CNN, other networks. As he became deeper and deeper, uh, as he got deeper and deeper into the Trump camp, um, he fell off in terms of a lot of those appearances. But uh, no matter how this works out, he's really marginalized now. Mm, I'm not sure about that last part, Bill. And really? that's because of recent history. Yeah, that's because of recent history. You, we, one would have thought the same thing of Matt Gates. One would have thought the same thing of Jim Jordan. One would have thought the same thing of the former President Donald Trump. Um, so I'm not sure about that part. Um, I will say, though, that 
Number one, um, to the, the, the question about the staff are waiting, uh, welcome to the lives of women who have been um, sexually assaulted or abused or harassed and have waited um, and for some of the same reasons of, you know, being blackballed from, from work, from professional life, um, and then that taking a toll on other aspects. So um, not sure if it is the staffer who has this ownership um, of, of the telling or the abuser who um, has, um, to Stephen's point about wielding his power um, to intimidate um, someone in a lesser influential position, um, you know, to, to, to feel victimized. Um, I also think that this is, again, another touch point uh, when people, um, when their hypocrisy comes to light. So, you know, when there are notions of being anti-gay or having notions of being against abortion, um, and then it comes out later on that you're actually doing the thing, um, that you are so profoundly in public um, are, are demonizing, it, it, it should create a notion in our minds that if someone is protesting too much, that perhaps there is something deeper that we need to pay attention to. And um, it becomes a distraction because it then puts folks into their feelings about items that they are uncomfortable with, <laughs> which um, allows us not to pay attention to actual policy. Kevin, I do think this is one of those stories that tests how news organizations make decisions about proceeding with uh, stories based on accusations without proof necessarily. Um, so how, how do you come to that decision at a place like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution? Yeah, it's always a very tough decision, and often um, there's a lot of checking on the credibility of the story um, sort of off the record or for background for people who don't want to be quoted. Uh, and I do think in this case, um, it's also important to mention, as as I think Rick did, that the, the Walker campaign, which didn't do a lot of things very well, and and, and many of those things were, we pointed out uh, on the show and in, in, in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, appeared to respond to this situation with once they were aware with alacrity and professionalism. And I do think that lends some credibility to the need to get it out there um, and make sure people are aware of it. And as I think Tammy's pointing out, to uh, give a person who brings this to light, you know, who who's, who talks about being victimized, uh, the occasionally a bit of the benefit of the doubt. All right, um, we're going to follow that story. We'll see what happens with Schlapp and the credibility of the uh, American Conservative Union uh, as it uh, continues to develop. Uh, Stephen, you're going to be spending time down at the state capitol, so if you don't mind, I want to ask you a couple of questions about legislation we're looking at. Um, now, House member Michelle Au has uh, filed a bill to raise the cigarette tax in uh, Georgia. It's the lowest in the country. She says the state needs, uh, not only needs the revenue, but more important, she thinks it will be beneficial to the health of Georgians. The question is, they've looked at this before and they've never been able to pass an increase in the cigarette tax of any substantive amount. 
Well, right. I mean, it, it gets to the interesting <clears throat> economics and morality arguments of a lot of tax-related things in Georgia. You know, for example, gambling uh, and the issue of the morality of allowing gambling and a lot of Southern Baptists in particular opposing gambling and horse race betting and things like that, even though people are making the economic argument that it could raise more money for college scholarships and other things like that. The cigarette tax is the same thing. I mean, it it's considered, I think other places call it like a sin tax, where there's more of a tax place to disincentivize people from purchasing cigarettes. But at the same time, if they do, it gives the government a cut of that to be able to raise money for other things like that. And so what it'll be interesting, uh, you know, uh, Representative Awe is a member of the Democratic Party and might not get a whole lot of traction even in a good year. But it the economic argument might be the way she could persuade somebody across the aisle from picking this up and taking it, if nothing else, at least for a committee hearing. Rick Dent, there's another interesting uh, uh, revenue issue that the legislature may take up this session, and that is, as we start seeing more and more e-vehicles on the road, the question is going to become, how does the legislature come up with um, uh, bills that will address the shrinking revenues that we may start seeing from the gas tax, which, by the way, is back in place, 35 cents on a uh, for uh, uh, regular gas, I think, or 31 cents for regular gas, 35 cents for diesel now that the uh, uh, governor's uh, suspension is over with. So they got to figure out how do you make back revenues for roads and other infrastructure? And that's an issue they're going to wrestle with this session. Uh, yeah. And, you know, those those type of green issues cut across the board the same thing with solar panels and utilities, and that yeah. is you have an infrastructure. You have the grid over here. In terms of EVs, you have the road. You're taking away the taxes that support that infrastructure, and yet you continue to use that infrastructure. So if you're not paying for gasoline, you're not paying the gas tax to help build and maintain those roads. So that's the issue. What do you do as you grow the EV uh, supply in this state? And you've already heard the governor say, we're going to be number one. Where do you find the revenue and how do you fairly, how do you fairly tax those people who are using electric vehicles? Because you can't yeah. kill them. If you tax, if you tax them too much, you're going to kill that industry in its infancy. Infancy. That's so, an issue. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah, we'll, we'll be looking at that issue very, very quickly, Kevin. We talked about this yesterday. It's interesting that we're now going to get Q-cells, this $2.5 billion expansion, when at the same time, Georgia Power has told the PSC that it is uh, does not believe that people who put solar in their homes should get any tax breaks because they're not paying their fair share into the grid. An interesting contradiction between this incoming industry and how the state, uh, or how at least Georgia Power, recognizes it. Right, and I think it's the challenge of all state governments and the federal government, as Rick points out. How do you manage this transition effectively? Those who do will thrive, those who don't will suffer. We are completely out of time. What a great show. Thank you so much, Tammy Greer, Kevin Riley, Rick Dent, Stephen Fowler. We'll look for your piece on the inauguration soon at GPB 
www.bluefrog.org. That's it for us. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care and stay healthy, everybody. <laughs>